Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of The Edge, the official podcast of Bass Edge Television. Bass Edge Television is on Wild TV in Canada currently, and we'll be back on the Versus Network January through next June. Hey, guys, it's Outdoors Dan, and my co-host Aaron Martin is right here. Aaron, how you been? Hey, good. Great to be back. I'm telling you, it's been a while. Hey, hey you know, we're going to be joining some great people on this podcast, and i got to tell you, what is it like to be on the FLW Tour? Uh, you know, it's it's pretty exciting. I, you know, the the competition is is just like it is on the the Bassmaster side of it, and mm-hmm. uh, some great anglers. But uh, you know, this year they just awarded a million bucks out. So, well, I heard it's it's getting crazy over there. And we got a well, speaking of the FLW tour, we're going to be hearing from pro uh, Luke Clawson, and I understand he just came off some surgery. Yeah, yeah, he's in he's in recuperation, and uh, but he's healing well and and getting ready for next year's season. So, uh, it it should be a good interview. Well, there you go. I'm looking forward to that. And then we're going to visit with Lionel Hollingsworth of True Track Lures, and they're going to go in depth, no uh, pun intended there, <laughs> about his revolutionary spinnerbait designs. And don't forget, we're going to answer some lucky email questions from listeners and give away some great prizes to this week's lucky winner. Are you ready to get going? I'm ready. Let's do this. You're listening to The Edge, the official audio program of Bass Edge. Oh, look here. I got one. I got one. Look here. <laughs> I mean, he whacked that football jig. The blades will dictate a lot of times the speed of the retrieve or the depth of that bait. Oh, good fish. Good fish. Did you see him come off that log? Woo, look at that son of a gun, man. That's awesome. You know, you've got to just stay active. Fishing is not easy. Oh, man, that's a toad. This is unbelievable. All right, welcome to The Edge. This is Outdoors Dan. He is Aaron Martin. And, you know, I know we've been off, what, what were we off, a week? Yeah. Hard so we had a week, week break, and I know you were fishing down in, uh, where were you? I was. I have been all over. We have been uh, down in the south, uh, in, down in Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia, kind of down in that area. And while we were down there, uh, actually Steve Brigman filled in for you. I think you were out in a tree stand somewhere, right? I, I was in Kansas shooting a big deer. Well, that's that's always a good thing. Yeah. You know, I can't catch a fish to save my life, but, you know, lately I've been whacking the deer, so it kind of even out. There you, know? you go. There you go. Yeah. Well, I've uh, I've had the fun part of getting to spend a lot of time on the water, on a lot of different bodies of water, but, you know, that, that southern swing that, that we just came off of, it is unbelievable. Of course, this has been all over the national news, but it's it's really amazing as, as far as the lack of water that's in that, that Georgia, Alabama, you know, that, that southern part that's down in there. Some of those lakes are just about to shrivel up and go away well and you know what if i remember correctly last time you and i spoke and i you know it's been a while since i've been on the water but shouldn't they be uh feeding really heavily right now to get winter ready for winter yeah no question and the irony of that is the last time that that we talked you know i just gotten back from texas to where they had been experiencing you know high waters Mm -hmm. so it's it's really unique to be able to go to two different parts of the country and experience such you know opposite ends of the spectrum from the water levels and uh well when you say water levels aaron too let's not forget about the water hazards you know if you're out navigating bodies of water you're not familiar with there's a lot of logs and stuff out there and you want to be careful oh yeah and definitely in the in the shallower shallower lakes you know some of those areas uh, a buddy of mine dave wolak uh he just sent me some pictures matter of fact we were supposed to be filming on santee cooper and uh, we had to completely cancel uh, that shoot because there's there's just no water. But you know, back to your earlier question as far as what the fish are doing, it, it's a unique situation. You know, in high waters you actually have more surface area 
uh, surface water for the the bass to move out and mm-hmm. you know hold up in. So it it can become a little cumbersome of trying to pinpoint where the fish are. But when the water drops, for instance, like on Clark Hill, to where it's down eight or nine feet. Um, you know, really those, those fish don't go too far from the areas that they were holding. In other words, if they were holding on main lake points, they're just going to be, you know, obviously further down the point. Um, but photo period is really what dictates, you know, putting the, placing those bass into a feeding mode. Because if you think of it, they, none of them have calendars, you know, to be able to tell them. And granted, the water temperature drop helps make them more comfortable, but ultimately it's the decrease in daylight that really triggers that bass to go into that feeding mode, kind of like a bear going into hibernation. Well, actually, and I'm glad you just said that because I was going to back you up there a minute when you said, what What? What was that word? Bear? No, photo, what was that? <laughs> photo period. Photo period, <laughs> yeah, because, in, you know, see, redneck terms, like for what I would say, that's when the amount of daylight hours change. Exactly. And, you know, that's, that is true. That's, that's the way nature gets feed, not only animals to feed, but... Actually, that's why when deer, when the uh, daylight gets shorter, that actually stimulates the does to go into estrus, which starts the rut. Right. So because it's amazing how, how many different things that actually affects. Right, and the, and the wildlife are, are so dependent upon that, and it's when you stop and think about it, it's almost spooky as far as how all that works. But mm-hmm. uh, it's a good thing you and I aren't in charge of, you know, creating that trigger. Cause I'm, still on, I'm still on, I'm if I got my clock set. Yeah, you don't even know if you're on daylight savings. I, I don't. I, I still don't understand <laughs> it, and I, I don't try but, to. You know, one of the things, I can remember when uh, Table Rock, about three years ago, it reached a, a 30-year low. And likewise, with what's going on in the south right now, what I did during that period of time was get out on the, on the lake and look at areas of where I normally catch fish. Of course, it's high and dry way up on the bank, mm-hmm. but the ability to go out and set new GPS waypoints on a body of water that you know, as well as just educate yourself to say, okay, now I understand why I'm catching fish. Maybe if, if it's a point, maybe it has a rock ledge or a particular rock hump or some structure or a brush pile or something like that. But make a mental note and then also take meticulous notes as far as where that location is. That'll help you with that spot. But then it'll also help you when you go to new areas and new lakes that have similar types of, of structure to be able to know how to approach, you know, that particular body of water, more specifically that particular type of, of structure. Absolutely. Hey, and one of my little favorite tips about fishing, too, is as the seasons change, that's time to get new line on the reels. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, but if you, one of the things that we'll be talking about a little bit later is that, you know, the this braid that we've been talking and talking and talking about, uh, you know, you don't have to change that braided line near as often as what you do the fluorocarbon or the monofilament. So. Really? Yeah. I'll make sure to hear I'm, more I'm about, about that. saving you money. Well, there you go. Well, folks, listen, we need to take a short break. We're going to be right back with Luke Clawson and other great stuff right here on The Edge. You've got the truck. You've got the toys. Now it's time to get the hitch that gives you more time to play with both. It's the tow and stow receiver hitch by B&W. You want options? Select the ball size, adjust the height to level the trailer, or stow it out of the way in just seconds. It's 10,000 towing pounds worth of durability, convenience, and the latest technology that has made B&W famous. The tow and stow receiver hitch by B&W. Call 1-866-BEST-HITCH. Welcome back to The Edge, the official podcast of Bass Edge. All right, welcome back to The Edge, and we are joined currently by Luke Clawson, who has quite a laundry list of accomplishments and accolades to his uh, credentials. So, Luke, welcome, and uh, thanks so much for being part of The Edge. Thanks, Aaron. I appreciate you having me here. You know, Luke, before we get into some of the specifics, uh, I'm, I'm always fascinated in, in watching your career. 
you know, you're actually not very old. <laughs> you know, and I don't want to give it away. I'll, I'll leave that up to you. But to have both an FLW championship as well as a Bassmasters Classic under your belt at such a young age, um, you know, that, that's that's unbelievable. It's pretty amazing even to me, you know, to be 29 years old, having won those two major titles. Now, I've only fished professionally for five years now. I'm really fortunate to have those wins behind me. Well, you know, how did you get your start into not necessarily competitive fishing, but, you know, cause you're originally from Washington. How mm-hmm. in the world, the state of Washington, that is. How did you get introduced into the sport of bass fishing? Everybody thinks in Washington there's no bass. It's all trout, salmon, steelhead. Really, there's quite a few bass. I was uh, When I was a little kid, I fished all the time, loved to fish. My mom would take me and drop me off the lake in a little flat-bottom boat, and that was my babysitter. And that's really what got me driven to fish. And The competition really started when I was about 16 or 17. I started fishing a few local tournaments and got to where I started fishing some team tournaments, a little bit bigger tournaments, and won a boat when I was 17. And winning 20 grand when you were 17, <laughs> it got me hooked. Well, you know, that, that, at least you had transportation at that point right and, <laughs> right you know and, and that's one of the things about fishing is that once you start and you, you speaking of, of getting hooked it's almost an addiction you know when whether you pursue this recreationally or competitively bottom line is it gets in your blood and it's just an experience like no other really it is and it's you against the fish it's that addiction is driven by your competitive instinct even to beat the fish not necessarily fishing against someone else but trying to understand those fish going out and catching fish every time it's frustrating when you come home and haven't figured out how to catch them on a day on the water so you know when you look at some of the things that you've done at such an early age and, and really you know I, I keep bringing up age but but fishing is one of those things that it doesn't matter how old you are or you know what your skill set is bottom line it can be enjoyed rather by a lot of people and a lot of different types it doesn't matter on sex they don't know where you live all those things are are factored out of the equation i guess if you will but what do you consider to be some of the things that have helped place you at, at where you're at really probably the biggest thing has helped me is being from washington and traveling around going to so many different fisheries being from there i've had to travel from california to florida to new york a little bit everywhere and you get to see so many different places it enables you to figure the fish out a lot quicker seeing that many diverse fisheries you can understand what's going on a lot quicker you're quicker to pick it up so with that being said you know Obviously, you are known for having a spinning rod in your hand. And one of those techniques, which seems to have taken you know, the U.S. by storm, and, and that's the shaky head. Why is that bait so, and that technique and presentation so effective? I think there's a couple factors that make it really effective, and it happens everywhere we go. Um, you know, about the shaky head, it go, we go to places that are dirty and places you wouldn't expect to catch them on a shaky head, yet inevitably somebody does, regardless if the water's muddy, what time of year it is, somebody always catches them on it. And I think those fish have gotten so pressured now, you're casting a lot more, so you're staying away from the fish than you would be flipping. And also, it's a really subtle presentation. It slices through the water, causes very little disturbance, and they can't identify exactly what it is a lot of times. So as far as on, on the shaky head, for those, our listeners who may not know what that is, can you, can you put into words, I know that's, that's sometimes difficult, but can you describe a little bit about what goes behind the shaky head and, and what it actually is? Right, a shaky head essentially is just a little jig head with a straight tail worm on it. It's a piece of plastic that's about the size of a pencil and five inches long. It's a, a really non-exciting thing. You know, there's not much to it. It drags along the bottom. It doesn't even wiggle as much as people think if you ever see it in a tank. It doesn't even stand up like you'd expect it to do. It pretty much drags along the bottom. It makes a little bit of a spiral and it falls, but it's really not that impressive of a bait, but it really catches fish. We often talk about, you know, keeping things simple. But yet, when you go into tackle stores, and you know whether they be big or small, you have all these different baits. But something as simple as just a straight tail worm, a piece of lead, and a hook—you know—that you can actually bait and go to work with and produce so many fish. 
Now, are there specific techniques or I'm sorry, specific areas that you are targeting that shaky head with that work better than others? I like to throw it where other people don't. I throw a shaky head a lot of times on laydowns, uh, docks, a lot of shallow cover, places where people are flipping and pitching, getting their boat a lot closer than I am throwing a lot bigger baits. There's a lot more opportunity when you're doing something different than someone else, but it really catches fish everywhere from zero to 30 foot of water or even deeper. It's just uh, wherever the fish are, you can catch them on them. Well, you know, is is there something that you actually have to do, you know, to the bait? I mean, is this, and, and again, I mean, I feel like I'm grabbing straws, <laughs> but I really want our listeners to understand the not only the effectiveness, but how easy it is to fish. Right. I think we need to go back to the simplicity of fishing. And you look at the size of a fish's brain, there's not much there. We're outsmarting ourselves <laughs> most of the time. Yeah. So, I mean, really, when you're not catching fish, you're outsmarting yourself. Because you, if you're around them doing the right things, you're going to catch them. And a shaky head for me is a pretty simple deal. Most of the time, it's an eighth ounce jig head and a five inch green pumpkin power worm and i throw that 95 percent of the time and in my in that particular setup and probably of the lakes we go to i'll throw a shaky head 90 percent of the time because you can always catch fish on it it's something to always get your confidence up when you're not catching them clear water versus dingy water does it matter it doesn't matter. It's better in clear water, but it works in dirtier water, too, to a certain extent. I did see a tournament here this year, last year, at Lake Dardanelle, which would be uh, similar to anywhere else we go. It got dirty in the spring. The water uh, was pretty stained from the runoff there, and people caught them on a shaky head. Places you wouldn't expect to see them get caught. They caught them out in the river when you could only see an inch and a half, two inches of water. I never would have thrown a shaky head, and they go out there and win the tournament. Yeah, you're thinking big-bladed spinnerbaiter, but, you know, right. the power fishing. Something for those fish to find, but they weren't in the mood to really search things out. That subtleness still got them now, what about as far as line size? You know, working backwards now to the terminal tap. Mm-hmm. I've, uh, about two years ago, I guess, well, I guess to go back to my full shaky head experience, <laughs> I had, the first time I threw a shaky head was in the 2004 FLW Championship. I'd never thrown in my life. I'd fished a drop shot a lot out west, but I threw a shaky head there and ended up winning the tournament leading all four days and pretty much blew the field away throwing the shaky head. So obviously I was hooked on I made 500 grand off this bait. I'm going to throw it some more. Definitely. And uh, I started getting a little bit, uh, experimenting a little bit with it, and I've gotten to where now I use braid with a fluorocarbon leader. I'll use a 10-pound Berkeley Stealth with an 8-pound Trilene fluorocarbon uh, almost all the time. Um, I'll go up to a 10-pound if there's a lot of cover around, and I think the watercolor, I can get away with a little bit heavier leader on there, but most of the time, it's that 10-pound braid with an 8-pound leader. Then what kind of knot are you using to, to tie the two together? I use a blood knot. It's something I've used since I was a little kid, salmon and steelhead fishing back home, and I'm really comfortable with it. It's probably the smallest knot to come through your guides, the most streamlined. It's just uh, seven twists on each side, a little bit of practice, you can tie it pretty quick. Something I do do to that knot is put super glue on it, and I'll roll it in my fingers. You can actually keep your fingers moving with super glue on it and round that knot, the corners of it, so it comes through your guides even better. Just make sure you don't pause for too long. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now, what about the length of the leader? Does that matter? Uh, again, it depends on watercolor. There's a lot of variables there. I'll usually probably 10 foot's about average for me. But like we went this year to the championship, Lake Washita, there was a lot of grass. I was throwing up in the holes in the grass. I only used about a two foot leader, knowing that's all the fish could see in my leader. But yet when those fish swam around that grass, I could actually let that let line out and the braid would cut through the grass. And the fish were fighting the fluorocarbon, but the braid was cutting the grass for me. So it helped virtually create a path of for them to come out. Right. I was able to fight those fish out of there a lot easier than if I had a 10-foot leader. That braid wouldn't have been against the grass, and the fluorocarbon would have been not cutting through it as well. So working backwards from there, next thing is the rod. 
Yeah, and, and again, it, it depends on the situation. I know it sounds like there's a lot of variables for a pretty simple bait, but I uh, I use about four different rods for different situations. I have a light, light rod. I'll throw a 16th on, and the lighter the head, the lighter the rod I want usually to cast it better. You need the rod to load for you to be able to cast it effectively. Now, what do you mean by load? Well, the rod actually is helping you cast. It's bending backwards when you on your backhand you go to cast, and it's actually accelerating your bait at the end of your cast there. So the lighter the bait, the lighter the tip you need, so the rod will bend and help accelerate your bait when you cast. And then the other three that would, would join the, the, the right. lighter action? The heaviest one I'll throw more like a quarter ounce head on so I have some backbone to cast it with because you get too much load, it's not actually going to cast your bait. It's hard to be accurate with it. So there's a fine line there between a quarter ounce and a sixteenth ounce, which doesn't sound like a lot of weight, but casting with that light of a rod, it actually is quite a bit of difference. Length, does that depend on, on variables as well? I use the same length rod most of the time, uh, especially with braid. When I was using straight fluorocarbon before, I'd uh, use a little bit longer rod if I was fishing deep so you'd get more of that stretch out of there. That stretch variable is gone using the braid now. Uh, skipping is something I'll do a lot lighter rod with, though, too. Again, creating more speed and more effectively skipping your bait under docks. When you say skipping, describe that presentation. Well, just a sidearm cast with that, with that worm, you can actually get it to skip across the water like a, you would a rock and get it underneath docks, underneath uh, trees, laydowns, whatever it may be, and go underneath all that stuff that low presentation to try and get the bait to where the fish are right exactly got to do that to catch them sometimes, right, <laughs> right? So what about reels i mean is there any type of variables there uh I, I like a smaller reel i like a light reel just less arm fatigue the quicker you'll be with the rod i think the less arm fatigue the more you're actually feeling more effectively you cast throughout the day so i like a smaller lighter reel i use a abu garcia cardinal 802 so now that we have more or less, you know, the basically on the terminal tackle side, mm-hmm. broken down, you know, the bait itself, what about as far as areas that you are targeting and when? You know, is this a year-round presentation? It does work year-round. This is a bait that works pretty much the whole year. I, I can't really think of a time of year I wouldn't try to throw it. And where you're going to throw it is where you think the fish are. It's as simple as that. It sounds crazy, but you can't, <laughs> it, you can, there's no absolutes in fishing. You can't go out and say they're going to be on laydowns in the spring and not in the fall, or they will be in the summer. And that's why we go back to where, me being from Spokane, a lot of times I don't know where I'm going to catch them. You go out to a lake and you don't have a clue, and that's your advantage. That's why you go to a lake that you've never been to and do a lot better than lakes you go to all the time because you don't have those preconceived ideas. You need to go out and experiment. I personally like to throw it at a lot of cover, shallow water stuff myself. So transcending into something that you just said earlier, you know, being from Spokane, how does someone that come from the state of Washington, how tough has it been for you to adjust into, you know, some predominantly what is what it has been a southern sport now, of course, now it's more national based, mm-hmm. but has that been an adjustment? Well, there's little things you learn along the way. Um, it's been an adjustment. There's been times it's helped me because I didn't know what I should be doing or shouldn't be doing, like we were saying before. But we never had shad in Washington. That's a variable I've never seen before. Um, you know, we only fished about nine months out of the year. There was ice on the lakes in the winter. So winter <laughs> fishing down here is something new to me, too. But it's all relative. And, and, again, going back to fishing more fisheries and fishing more species has helped me a lot to understand how fish react to different conditions. You are, are in a situation right now to where you're just coming off of something that is is a little bit new and probably in the spotlight and that is personal injuries that has taken place as a result of the sport being so young with with your elbow what exactly happened there? Yeah, I guess I'm somewhat of an anomaly. A lot of older guys, Larry Nixon, Mark Davis, have had surgeries on their elbow, and it's the same thing that I had happen just at a lot younger age, but I've also fished a lot more days than me, most people my age. Uh, my elbow, I had a tendon that was starting to fray off from the bone here, and I had to go in and get surgery this year. They actually had to take it and detach it from the bone, and they put four screws in it and had to reattach it with a clean edge to get it to attach. 
And that was partially my fault. I didn't know or never had put thought into stretching before I ever fished. And if I would have stretched my elbow a lot more and been working out in the fall, actually conditioning myself, I probably could have avoided the injury. Well, and speaking of personal conditioning, just take that a step further. For somebody that fishes every day, you know, that's probably some of the best conditioning there is. But as far as a recreational fisherman, Mm -hmm. you know, talking about stretching before you go fishing, what a great concept. Because this may be something that they only get on the water eight or ten times a year. Right. And it's, you know, it's countless number of people that came up to me in the last year hearing about my injury saying, I have the same thing. And they're guys that are fishing, you know, two, three days a month is all. It's not like they're fishing every day like I do. But again, they don't have the conditioning that I do either. And yeah, just taking your arm and extending it and pulling your hand back towards yourself and stretching it back up and down and doing that once or twice a day will help to stretch that tendon and have a little squeeze bar, a ball in your car to strengthen your arm. Can, you can avoid something like that. You can do that on the way to and from uh, to and from the lake. Yeah. Three, four minutes a day is all you really need to do. Your arm will get tired doing much more than that yeah. <laughs> it doesn't sound like you're doing much but it actually wears you out a little bit now you are you also in the, in the weight room and do you have a specialized conditioning program that you do outside of just the stretching and the, and the tension balls i will in the future i haven't it's probably been a mistake i've been going to physical therapy now for my arm but i'm going to probably get more of a weight regiment going now to try to get uh, uh every every part of my body a little bit stronger here we have so much fatigue on our backs and our stomachs and our shoulders when we're fishing standing all day and in the rough water beating yourself up uh, we should take note from what's happened to a lot of the older fishermen that are having sort of back surgeries and shoulder and elbow and a lot of those problems that you're seeing throughout the, the whole fishing industry. So what, what's on the horizon? for you now that is you're recovering from an injury <laughs> i'm excited to get back fishing you know i just came from a tournament here i had to go down and work with some sponsors and seeing everybody and watching weigh in i was pretty ch- jazzed to get back out there and go fishing again pretty excited about getting out this spring and hopefully i'll have a year that is pain-free the last oh geez about year and a half now i've been uh, fighting with that pain and having cortisone shots and it's kind of been a struggle in my confidence because i was using it having to use a spinning rod so much i didn't really have the option of using a lot of bait casters i couldn't flip a three-quarter one ounce weight so hopefully i'm healthy and get back out next year and i'd really like to take a run at an angle to the year title yeah. well you know it's it's something that you certainly can take for granted but once you're without it you realize how important the experience of this sport is and one, one last thing in our in our closing minutes here how important is confidence regardless if you compete or not when you approach a body of water confidence is huge uh if you go out there and really feel like you're going to catch them not feel like you know how you're going to catch them but just think i'm going to figure them out by the end of the day something's going to happen for me and just let yourself go through the motions of fishing and trying to figure things out that confidence will get stronger and stronger the more successes you have and it'll make you better fisherman well luke unfortunately we are out of time but it has truly been a pleasure to have you here on the edge and you've taught us so much about shaky head and certainly clarified a lot of the issues that are out there with regards to what it is even so <laughs> thanks so much for being part of the edge oh, i appreciate you having me you know aaron i gotta tell you my favorite 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 thing about that whole interview was about the spinning rod and reels and how he likes to use spinning tackle to catch more fish yeah i mean and and luke uh, certainly epitomizes that that description. You know, he's a fairly young angler. You know, I think he's uh, I think he said he was like 28, mm-hmm. but um, you know, very very young to have won both the Bassmasters Classic as well as the FLW Cup. Uh, that's already in his uh, long list of accolades that he's put together as an angler. But you know, sitting there and visiting with him concerning a spinning rod and reel, he will tell you the majority of of the dollars in his success has come as a result of having that in his hands. Well, I just think it gives you more opportunities. I mean, if you downsize your baits, you can you can do different presentations. And with a baitcaster, that always does not give you that option. Well, right. And, and you know, with 
the, the popularity of bass fishing, more people picking it up, plus just the fact that these fish are, or, are more and more pressured. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the reasons why that, that the spinning rod and reel or this finesse uh, technique that we like to call it has, has really taken off is because before, historically, you know, fishing came out of the south and uh, was really spawned out of, out of that area. And the popularity back then was power fishing, you know, throwing the spinnerbaits, throwing the crankbaits, flipping that jig, the big plastics, those type of situations. Well, now, just think of how many years has passed. You know, fishing is relatively a, a newer sport. You know, it's not like golf or something that's been around since, you know, the, the late 19th century. Um, but it's something that's, that's relatively new. And every time that you're placing a bait, per se, or a spinnerbait or a crankbait, those lures in front of those fish, you know, I can't hardly help but imagine that, that you're not educating those fish of what that actually is. And then yeah. to multiply that time and time again in the same day, You've got to use what you can. Well, I, you know, I don't know how you see this, but I, I think there's a resurgence or a, a, a comeback around effect on fishing right now. I remember when I was little, the big lures were like the MEP spinners and the beetle spins and stuff like that. And then as the years went by, you got into the bigger and bigger and bigger baits. And I, I'll be honest with you, Aaron, I, I, there's a lot of times when I can throw the smaller stuff with a spinning reel and be more productive. Oh, no question. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely, you are definitely going to get uh, increase your bites. Now, as far as size, the jury's still out a little bit. I have my own philosophy on that, and my belief mm-hmm. is that I can catch just as big a fish on a spinning rod and reel. I prove that. I mean, you know, when I was at Amstead uh, fishing that open tournament, in practice I caught one that was 10.23 on, on eight-pound test line, you know, on a drop shot rig. I mean, you know, my biggest bass have actually, my top two biggest bass have actually come on a spinning rod and reel. Now, is that because I throw that more? No, not necessarily. I don't agree with that. But it has to do with the time of years, and it has to do with areas of which you can get that bait into with a little more of a subtle presentation and get the fish to react. I think that's really what it boils down to. Oh, absolutely. Well, I want to thank Luke. That was a great uh, segment there. Hey, folks, we need to take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to get into more stuff. And actually, I think we're heading to my favorite section of the whole podcast, (laughs) the product giveaway and listener email. We'll be right back. When I'm fishing in a tournament, time is critical. I need fast, easy access to my lures. My Cook's go-to tackle system keeps my bait organized, tangle-free, and within easy reach. It installs in minutes under any deck lid, maximizing the storage space in my boat. And its durable construction lasts even through the harshest conditions. Get organized with Cook's tackle system by calling 1-888-390-8780 or online at cooksgoto.com. All right, we're back on the edge, and it's almost Christmas time on the podcast today. Ho, ho, ho. Yeah, you know, that's kind of <laughs> scary. I can't believe it. Thanksgiving's like a week or two away. It go from Halloween to Thanksgiving and into Christmas. I mean, it's like a blur, you know? It's just it's just crazy. But, you know, every every week's Christmas on, on the Edge podcast. That's right. Because we're always giving stuff away. But, hey, we got a great email from Carla from San Marcos, Texas. And she's going to receive an Ardent Real Cleaning Kit. Now, that's awesome. Awesome. That comes complete. With cleaning solvent, a real butter deal. Real butter deal. Do you like that? Yeah. That, Grease that, that, cleaning that. tools to keep your reels in top working order. So congratulations to Carla. And we got a great question from Mike in Wisconsin. And Aaron, I'm going to let you handle that. All right. Um, yeah, thanks to Mike for sending this in. But uh, he, 
He sent in one that I love to talk about, but the question is, I'm relatively new to bass fishing, but I have heard you mention the effectiveness of a shaky head for targeting bass. I've never heard me say that. Have you, Dan? Yeah, you know what? And can I stop you right now? Yeah. Can I? I actually had to go buy a shaky head to understand what we were talking about because I've never used one. There you go. And I kind of feel like an idiot. But what a neat deal! It keeps the bait elevated off the bottom. Exactly. And yeah. That's, that's, See, I didn't. Uh, I didn't. Major, major factors that has to do with why it works so well. Yeah. But uh, what he is asking is, can you please tell me? The specific, and he has that in capitalized letters, gear, you recommend for this technique. Absolutely, Mike. And, you know, I think one of the things that is important when you approach any style of fishing is it's not just the bait, but you have to match the gear with the technique that you're trying to demonstrate. So I'd be happy to go through that with you. As far as the rod, we'll start there. Um, you know, I like a 7-foot medium-heavy spinning rod with a fast-action tip. Okay, now what does that mean? Well, the fast action tip, this allows you to detect the subtle bites. And it really, as you're bringing that bait across the bottom over rocks normally, uh, or logs, or whatever the bottom is composed of, it allows you to feel your bait as it comes over that structure, but still have enough power that when you do need to set the hook, because sometimes when you're throwing a shaky head, granted, you know, you're going to catch fish in that, you know, 6 to 12 foot range, but oftentimes you're catching them, you know, 20 to 30 feet deep as well. So you want to make sure that you have enough power actually drive that hook in and then be able to handle the fish during the fight without getting slack in your line, which ultimately we know what slack does. That allows mm -hmm. them to uh, shake their head and come off. And a lot of those smallmouth and spotted bass, you know, they are very, very aggressive. Once they are hooked, they want to get that hook out of their mouth. As far as the reel, I go with an Ardent S400 with a front drag. Uh, the reason I like the front drag is that allows me, if I need to make adjustments while I'm reeling, it's right there in the front. I can turn that tighter or, or less, uh, less tight, I guess, if you will. Uh, but it also has an anti-reverse. And one of the reasons why I'm such a stickler on an anti-reverse is because on some of those reels, if you notice, after you flip that bale over and put that into a reeling position, if that reel handle or that bale allows it to back off even the slightest, whenever you set that hook, if that slack is in your rod and reel, you're only going to get a certain, a small percentage of that force translated down into the hook to drive that through that, that fish's mouth. So anti-reverse is a big, big key. I also like having an extra spool uh, to keep different line size on as well for easy transition depending on the water clarity. You know, a lot of times I'll throw that on 8 pounds, maybe I want 6 pounds sometimes, but it's just nice to have that extra spool to be able to change that out uh, very easily. As far as line, this is something that I've done new this year. Uh, this was as a result of um, a friend of mine, Sean Hernke, who introduced this to me. But I use 15-pound braid as the baseline and then tie, using a uninot, an 8-pound fluorocarbon leader. Um, and then I just place a dab of, of super glue on the knot. This knot, in all this entire year that I've used it, it has never, never broke at the knot. Um, it, it's just amazing. But what that allows to do by using that braid and that fluorocarbon leader combo there's zero stretch with the braid, and it's ultra-sensitive, uh, which ensures that the strike detection and a good en energy transfer upon that hook set. Plus, the braid, you know, it lasts a really, really long time before needing to be replaced, mm -hmm. ultimately helping out on the budget. As far as the jig head, eighth ounce to quarter ounce, depending on the depths, you know, really anything less than 12 foot. Uh, if it's not too windy, I'll stay with that eighth ounce to three sixteenths. Anything that's over that, I go to the quarter ounce. Preferably, I like them painted. The head's painted either a black, brown, or green to kind of match the, match the baits. But specifically, as far as the brands, I like that new Fintech uh, head design as well as that V&M 
head that, that, that they just came out with. Baits, uh, really there's, there's three baits. Any, any type of small profile bait will work well, but the baits that I often go to is going to be the, the Zoom Finesse Worm, uh, the V&M Pork Pen, or the Robo Worm. So there you go, Mike. In about 50 seconds, you've got the rundown of, of the equipment. About how long? I don't know. Yeah, try five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I was going as quick as what I could. <laughs> no, you did great. Very good. I hope that helps you out, Mike. And, hey, guys, don't forget to send out a question or comment, and you'll be in our weekly drawing. Simply send an email to podcast at BassEdge.com with your name and address in the body of the email, and we'll get to you as soon as we can. And uh, did you catch your breath? I, I know you I talked did catch there. my breath, actually, okay. yeah. All right. Well, we need to take our final break. When we come back, we're going to speak with lure designer Lionel Hollingsworth from True Track Lures to discuss in detail how he designs his legendary spinnerbaits. You ready to go? I'm ready. We'll be right back, folks. Give any type of boat the edge with MegaWare Keel Guard. It's simple to install, and we can now beach our boat anywhere. If you own a boat, you need one of these. MegaWare Keel Guard protects the keel of your boat from sand abrasion, from underwater obstructions, even concrete boat ramps. Kit started under $140, and best yet, it's guaranteed to keep on protecting for life. Thanks, MegaWare Keel Guard. Thanks, MegaWare Keel Guard. All right, welcome back to The Edge, and joining us for the next segment of our show is Mr. Lionel Hollingsworth of True Track Lures. Lionel, uh, great to have you on The Edge. Hey, I appreciate you having me. I really, really do. Uh, how's it going today? Oh, it's it's fantastic. You know, anytime you get to talk about fishing and uh, what's going on in, in this wonderful sport, it's it's a good day, right? So. It absolutely is. Absolutely is. <laughs> you know, Lionel, what amazes me is, you know, I was first introduced uh, to your lineup of baits, and specifically uh, the spinnerbait that you make under the True Track label, oh, I, I would say it was about 18 months ago. And, uh, you know, anybody that knows me knows how much I like to throw a spinnerbait. But before we get into kind of what makes those baits different and so successful, how in the world did you get into bait design and the idea of starting a, a bait company in such a competitive marketplace? Well, uh, what I used to do is, is I used to do a little bit of light tournament fishing. Uh, I didn't get into it as serious as a lot of folks do, but... Uh, Nevertheless, I wanted certain things of certain lures that I never could find. I found a company out in Texas I could buy components from, like, you know, spinnerbait heads and blades and all the goodies, you know, the swivels and everything to, to make them. And I started building my own from there uh, because I simply wanted something that was different. And after I had done this for a little bit, I had friends of mine come by and say, boy, we'd like to buy some of these things. Well, I had a good job. I wasn't interested in getting in, uh, into the tackle industry. Uh, Lord knows I was making more money at what I was doing and sell, trying to sell fishing tackle. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, I had some guys who said, you know, you need to put these in the stores. And I had a little bit of pressure on me, and uh, I kind of got it doing it. And, and again, all I was doing was buying components and putting them together. I wasn't actually making anything. But I got involved with some people down in Florida, and uh, I was buying a spinnerbait head from another guy over in Alabama. He did a real nice job and everything, and I decided, well, maybe I can buy an airbrush and kind of get close to what he's doing. And so I took my product down to this company in Florida, and they were buying a guy's bait from uh, Alabama. And they said, your head simply doesn't look as good as his. And that that kind of hurt my feelings. <laughs> and so I said, well, you know something, that's, that's going to be my challenge point right there. So what I did is it took me years and years and years of practice with that airbrush. And what I tell people, they ask me what I do for a living now, I tell them I'm an airbrush artist. Because that's just basically what I do is I paint. 
and uh, I have uh, taken my product to a, to an element so that instead of me judging my product by someone else's, there's a lot of people who judge their product by mine, and I can see it in the product duplication in the marketplace. Well, and that speaks volumes about you know just the the quality of what it is that you do, and I think anglers are becoming more and more savvy. The fish are obviously seeing more and more baits in front of their face. You know, those uh, that attention to detail means so much as far as a successful day on the water or, you know, not catching any. Exactly, and, and, and one of the things that we've done, uh, and, and I never really realized it until after I really got involved a little bit deeper, we've taken the heads of these spinnerbaits and actually painted little crankbait heads out of them. In other words, they look like little crankbaits. But what, what makes it so cool is we've also matched the skirt colors to the heads. We do not buy ready-made skirts. And the reason I don't buy ready-made skirts is because I can't find anybody who will build a quality skirt that I want to go on that good-looking head. So we do our own. Well, uh, and how do you come up with, you know, I know you spend a lot of time, you know, let's, let's start with the product design piece of it first. You know, you do things differently in, in that aspect, which is really the foundation of, of a good bait. You know, you have to have a good design before even getting into the components. Well, what you have to do is kind of look at what Mother Nature gives you. On my business card, I put, like, lifelike creations of nature. Uh, we've gone in and, and, and taken, for example, blueback herring, and we've matched the colors of blueback herring onto spinnerbait heads. We've taken bluegill uh, head colors, uh, and, and everything's a match. Everything's a perfect match from from one to the other. And, and then folks will send us in things from time to time. We paint a lot of crankbaits throughout this country. People will buy them. They'll send them to us and have, them, have us match them. And uh, one of the most successful colors that I've done in the last uh, two years is a color called a copper-nosed bluegill. Uh, we had a guy from Texas who sent us in some crankbaits, and he said, I want you to match this color, and I want you to paint these crankbaits, and I'm sending you just like it. And I saw it, and I said, shoot, I can make a spinnerbait color out of that. Well, that's been my number one selling color for two years. Uh, so consequently, what I do is, is, is I look at the things that has been presented to me, and I try to transpose them into what I'm doing now. And anything I can do to that lure that's going to give you just a little bit of extra flash or, or whatever it's going to take, uh, a spinnerbait is an impulse item, and you've got to do something to make that fish want to take, take the bait. Uh, so, so we try to do everything we can to make it uh, so that uh, when that bait comes by that fish, if, if if he's two, three feet away from it, if I can give you just a little glitter of something to make him come get that bait, that's what I'm trying to do. Well, and you truly have taken the, the design and just the artwork that's on these baits, but exactly. also just as far as, you know, how they they run, and, the, and hence the name True Track. I've you know, I, I've thrown many of spinnerbaits in my day made by a lot of great companies. But one thing that you cannot do with yours is you cannot reel it too fast. It will right. not lay over. Well, you know, if you, if you listen to shows on TV, and I've seen lots of segments on TV where professional anglers and, and whatnot will be talking about how do you tune a spinnerbait. And they'd, of course, talk about if the, blade, uh, if the bait goes to the right, take the wire and turn it to the left, and vice versa. Well, that's true, but if you really want to tune a spinnerbait, the way you tune a spinnerbait in reality, when that wire comes out of the head of that bait, if that bait, if that wire is not coming up at a at an angle, say somewhere between 30 and 40 degrees, that bait's not going to run straight. Um, you can take, for example, a, 
uh, a, a standard bait with that wire coming straight out of the head and put Colorado blades on it. Say so if you put take a three eighths ounce bait and you put a number five Colorado on it, it's going to roll over and over and over. And all you've got to do to tune that bait to where it'll track is to take that wire coming out of the head and bend it up at a little bit of an angle, say 30 to 40 degrees, and you can burn that bait and it'll run perfect. So that's one of the ways you really true a spinnerbait up. All our spinnerbaits, when you buy one, you never have to worry about whether or not that thing's going to track. Now, once you catch a fish, it's going to open up the wire, uh, so you're going to have to close it back down. You may have to do a little bit of retuning there, but as long as that wire is coming out of that head between 30 and 40 degrees, you're going to have a bait that's going to run perfect. And then what about as far as the, you know, the components that you select? There's very uh, specific reasons of why you use the materials that you use. Can you elaborate yeah. a little bit on that? Exactly, yeah. I use I use 032 wire. Um, if you listen to what fishermen want today, they want something they can feel vibration. Most spinnerbaits in this country are built on an 035 frame, and in some cases they build them in 040s. Um, we use 032s. In fact, sometimes when I can get a good deal on 031 wire, when I can find it, I'll use 031. Of course, nobody will ever know it but us, but 032 is my standard, 031 when I can get it. But I want you to be able to feel that blade when it comes through the water. Uh, and, and a lot of folks say, well, I can only catch five or six fish uh, with that spinnerbait. Well, guess what? That spinnerbait is a tool to be used like a tool. If you catch five or six fish on that bait, throw that thing away and put you another one on there and go back and catch five or six more. If you put a spinnerbait in there with heavy wire, you can't feel anything, not unless you've got some super sensitive equipment. I haven't found equipment yet that I can feel it that well with. Um, so, so it's kind of like uh, if you're using a knife or a chainsaw. After a while, I mean, it's exactly. going to get dull, and you just you go on to the next one. Exactly. Um, I've had I've had some professional anglers which are or paid to endorse uh, products from other companies that have come to me and asked me to do stuff for them, and 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 they say we look at these things as tools. We don't mind pay, paying for these tools, and that's exactly what they are. Um, I had one guy one uh, one Saturday afternoon, a real good friend of mine came by to see me. He said he was going fishing the next day and uh, wanted to get some spinner baits. Wanted to know if I could take care of him a little bit. And I said sure. So I gave him about a half a dozen, and uh, he went to the lake the next day. He, came, he called me about 12 o'clock, and he said, hey, we got a problem with one of your baits. And I said, what's that? He said, well, the wire is wobbling out of the head of the bait. And I said, let me ask you this. How many fish do you catch on that bait? He said, well, I caught two threes, a five, and a seven. And I said, what do you want me to do? <laughs> what do you want me to do? I mean, I can't do anything it else. Did it did its job, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, hey, it did its job. That's the main thing. Uh, you know, you, you just have to realize that these things aren't going to last forever. And I'm not going to tell you that you can go out and catch 150 bass on my spinnerbait because you can't do it. Sure, sure. You just can't do it. Well, I mean, you know, and one of the things I want to cover in, in our last closing minutes, obviously, you know, it a, a quality bait has to start with a, just a phenomenal design. And that's one of the things that you place into it. But then it's backed, you know, with the the quality components that you use and there's reasons why that you select that wire diameter because if you can't feel you know that vibration of what's going on down there you know chances are you're going to be missing fish exactly and uh we we go down and even to the point of where the blade and swivel connect on one that's one of my little hot buttons on my spinner bait we use what we call a lock and loop down there so if you get grass on your spinner bait blade and you want to slap it against water you don't have to worry about slapping that dollar swivel off or that two dollar blade off of that thing sure uh, so, you know, uh, we've done things to try to give you every advantage that you can get for spinnerbait. I mean, I tell people today we have the most perfect spinnerbait ever created. I don't know of anybody who's done anything any better. 
the, the downside of it is we're small business. We can't supply the world, so I can only have my little clientele group, you know, but we still, you know, produce the best that can be bought. Sure. Well, and speaking of which, how do our listeners find out? Do you have a website, or how can they find out about uh, how to purchase your baits? My biggest website user in this country is a company called Ron's Tackle in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, you can key in Ron's Tackle, and it will take you straight to his website, or you can key in True Track Lures and go straight to his website off of it. Uh, Ron and I have been doing business for a number of years, and uh, he, he is my biggest uh, web distributor, so to speak. But uh, I've not personally done a website. My dealers have asked me not to do it for fear of taking business away from them. Sure. And we certainly don't want to do that. Sure. Well, what about, uh, do you have an email address or a telephone email number? Email address, you can, you, can, you can reach us at E is an Edward Willowleaf at charter.net. And then you can steer them in the right direction as far as exactly. which, which dealer is closest to them. Exactly. Okay. Well, unfortunately, Lionel, uh, we are out of time, but fantastic. I, I really appreciate uh, the education, not only on the design and the components, but also just, just the fact of tuning in. And I'm sure we'll hear more out of you in the future. But Thanks again for being part of The Edge. I appreciate you calling me today. Well, you know, after listening to that segment, Aaron, I would say that he is an artiste. Oh, no question. And it certainly raises to a different level. You know, when he's talking about being able to take his airbrush and pull a crawdad or a baitfish out of the water and takes a picture of that and then able to transfer that over onto a lure, uh, and, and just think, I mean, he, he, yes, he paints crankbaits as well, but it's the spinnerbaits that we were focusing on, and mm-hmm. his head designs are just absolutely amazing. Now, how many of them have you used? I've used, uh, there's, there's four particular, uh, I guess, designs of his that I use, one of which he mentioned, which is that, that copper nose perch uh, color, but then also he makes a rainbow trout, which, believe it or not, works very well, regardless if the lake has trout in it or not, but then also that, that blueback herring. I mean, those are just, they're all very, very high detail. But the thing I think, it's not only his design, which I think that's the foundation, but also what he had mentioned as far as using that .032 gauge wire uh, for that increased vibration. You know, the industry standard is use a .035 or a .04, somewhere in that range, which is mm-hmm. a thicker wire. Mm-hmm. So what happens is you get or you are feeling less vibration because that wire is a lot more stiff. Now the bait will last longer, but like he mentioned, you know, you have to you want to get the bite first. And he sees the spinner baits as a tool. And you know, you catch four or five fish on them, you know, put that one up as a practice bait and then, you know, put you on a new one come tournament time or come, you know, the day when it counts. Well, I think, you know, and bottom line is you want to catch fish and who cares if it doesn't last as long? Right. And, and you know, I've, I've thrown anybody that knows me, you know, jig spinnerbaits and then throwing that shaky head drop shot. You know, those are probably my top three go-to techniques. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that I didn't know, though, when, when he talked about tuning a spinnerbait, you know, most of us think about, you look at the spinnerbait, if that wire is coming out, if it, you know, if you, if you need to tune it, you're going to bend that wire to the left or right. Right. His process, though, is a lot different. He says it, that wire that's coming out of the lead on the end of the head, it needs to be at a 30 to 40 degree angle. If you get that tuning correct, you don't have to mess with turning it to the left or right. So, see, even all of us can learn something new each and every day. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I really don't know how much less that's going to hold up than the standard anyway. I mean, honestly, 
that's not that. I mean, it's it's a little bit of a difference to get the vibration, but I don't know if it's going to stress it that much. More. I agree. I agree. I mean, you know, what is it going to be? One more fish, maybe at the most, but yeah. who cares? I mean, if you if you catch a quality bass and it you know knocks the fire and bends the wire, all hanging on the uh, trophy shelf and just remember when type yeah, deal. I'm, I'm glad we give you five dollars for a new one if it catches fish that good. Well, yeah, it's not like a, I mean, it's almost cheaper than a gallon of gas. Exactly. <laughs> so there you go. Let's just keep it in perspective. And you're definitely not going to catch any fish with right. with gas. I'm telling you. That's right. Hey, folks, I can't believe it, but we're out of time again. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. This was truly, truly an enlightening one for me. Next week, we're going to have another great show and interviews. And once again, we'll be giving away some great stuff in the podcast giveaway section. In the meantime, be sure to visit us at www.bassedge.com. For my buddy Aaron Martin, this is Outdoors Dan, and thank you so much for listening to the episode. This week's edition of Bass Edges, The Edge, has been brought to you by B&W Trailer Hitches, Cook's Tackle Management Systems, Locker Bar Boat Security Systems, and MegaWare Keel Guard. For more information on Bass Edge, including our television show, training materials, e-newsletter, and podcast, please visit www.bassedge.com.